0: Grant. Well, good morning. It sounds like you're having a very uh, interesting and uh, different uh, morning. Um- my name's up there, uh, which also you might want to take a note. Uh, I've got a website. Uh, If you go to PeterSWilliams.com, you'll find a website with uh, links to things like my podcast channel, etc., which might be particularly useful if you're doing A-level philosophy and ethics uh, stuff, because I'm a a philosopher. Uh, I'm a Christian philosopher by background, uh, but I'm not here to uh, impose my particular way of looking at things upon you, although it will be uh, clear in some of my remarks where I'm... Coming from, you can adjust for my personal bias as you feel uh, that you want to do. Um, Indeed, I hope that today, even when we come to looking at, uh, we'll look at at least one practical issue um, that divides opinion. Uh, I hope that uh, you'll take it not so much as me trying to uh, browbeat you into believing what I do, uh, but that you'll see that what I'm trying to do is set up a sort of example of how we do uh, ethical uh, thinking, ethical argumentation, the various different points at which and reasons why people end up disagreeing about things uh, in uh, particular moral judgments uh, because of various differences that people have uh, in their worldview, in their understanding of what a person is uh, in particularly, as we'll look at later, or perhaps in differing uh, different uh, systems of how we make moral choices uh, that people bring to the table with them. So I hope I'll give you a sort of whistle-stop tour of the, the background of the basics of ethics uh, within philosophy and the different approaches people take. And I'll leave it to you uh, to kind of think through uh, what chimes with you, what doesn't. And if you disagree with me or with each other, that's absolutely fine. But at least you'll have a better understanding of where different people are coming from and perhaps why people uh, disagree about things. Is that Okay. We can say, yes, wonderful. So I should, uh, should also note, fair warning, I am actually recording this one for the podcast channel. So uh, if you uh, talk out loud, I've scuppered my, my Q&A times now, you may end up on my podcast channel. But it's fair uh, to warn you. If you don't want your voice uh, being heard by anybody ever, um, then don't say anything or come and ask me a question afterwards. Uh, okay? Uh, so uh, fair warning given. Um, so I'm a Christian. I'd like to start out with a quotation from a uh, famous atheist Uh, philosopher uh, called Bertrand Russell, um, who says this uh, about philosophy and uh, ethics, and particularly science. Um, He says, we judge that happiness is more desirable than misery, uh, goodwill than hatred, and so on. In other words, we, we have some very basic moral intuitions about what states of affairs in the world are good and to be pursued and which ones are bad, and to be uh, damped down as far as we can, as it were. But he says such judgments may be elicited, elicited by empirical experience, but it's fairly obvious that they cannot be proved by empirical experience. So I observe some state of affairs in the world, and that observation might elicit within me a moral intuition, a moral judgment about it be it positive or negative. But it's not as if that empirical observation of the world can actually rationally justify that moral intuition. It's not that science can tell us the difference between right and wrong just because when we look at things empirically, we do end up finding ourselves making moral judgments about those things that we experience. He says this, it's fairly obvious they can't be proved by empirical experience for the fact that a thing exists or does not exist cannot prove either that it's good that it should exist or that it is bad that it exists. So there's a difference between observing that something is the case and making an ethical judgment about whether it should or should not be the case. The pursuit of this subject belongs to ethics and here... Uh, Though I disagree with him about the existence of God, I agree with him about this point about science and experience and ethics. Let me put it in this kind of way. Science is good at describing physical reality, uh, helping us understand how physical causation has caused various things, both in the past and in making predictions uh, somewhat Towards the future. Um, think of weather forecasting, obviously an inexact science, but the more we understand how the climate system works, the more accurate our weather forecasting predictions become. But ethics is more about prescribing and obligating. Of behaviour. It's more about saying, are there actual um, prescriptions about how we should act, obligations about how we ought to behave, what sort of life we ought to uh, pursue, and so on. So, uh, science will do a good job of telling me if I want to poison Aunt Mabel's afternoon cocktail thus standing a high chance of uh, inheriting her country estate, because I know I'm in the will, uh, (laughs) tomorrow, Um, how much poison do I need to use to achieve that goal? Science will do an excellent job of that. But science will not tell us whether or not poisoning Aunt Mabel for selfish ends is a moral or immoral action. For me to take, it might allow you to predict with some confidence whether or not people will behave like that on average. But it won't tell you whether or not people ought to behave or not to behave like that. Um, So, science can sometimes tell us things that are relevant to making moral decisions, um, because having an informed understanding of reality. Uh, can help there. But it can't be the the be-all and end-all of the subject of ethics. When you're into ethical uh, decision-making and so on, you're into philosophy or into metaphysics, beyond physics, rather than physics, chemistry, biology, sciences. Indeed, philosophers tend to divide thinking about ethics into uh, a number of levels of thinking about things as it were uh, at the top the most obvious we have applied ethics you just you have a dilemma you want an answer should we turn off the life support machine or not uh, uh, and as that illustration shows there are some ethical decisions that you can't avoid making if you say oh uh, oh that's really difficult i don't know should i uh, oh, i'm not going to do anything well, it's not as if you've not made an ethical choice because you've just thereby made the ethical choice not to turn off the life support system by saying, I'm not going to choose anything. You have chosen something. You can't but choose one way or the other sometimes. And so, of course, uh, we want to make as wise a uh, choice as possible, as ethical a choice as possible. Now, normative ethics, is where people propose some sort of um, sort of guidelines or some sort of way of thinking about ethics to help you make those wise ethical choices. But I think here it comes back to this issue about moral intuitions. So there are uh, obviously hard ethical choices, like sometimes, you know, should we turn off the life support system or not? But there are clear cases. Bless you. Now, if I say um, here's a moral statement for your consideration: um, it is wrong to torture small children just for fun. Okay. I hope there's no one sitting there thinking, "Oh, I don't know. That's a bit of a tricky one." You know. Um, if you are, um, please book yourself into a psychiatrist or a counselor or, or something soon. Um, so there are clear there are clear cases. But there are difficult cases. What happens when we get to normative ethics and someone says, well, here's, here's some sort of guideline, a way of approaching ethics to help you make choices. What we really do is we, we, we take that normative ethic, those norms, that approach, and we run it through our experience or some thought experiments to see does it tend to give the right answer where we think we, we know what the obvious right answer is. So if you were to come Forward with some sort of normative ethical system, the consequence of which was that that system said, if you want to torture small children just for fun, um, that's fine, go ahead, you know. Well, then I think that's so much the worse for your normative ethical system, because that's just really sort of obviously something that I want any ethical normative system to preserve. The fact that it seems it is a fact that you shouldn't torture small children for fun. You see? And then if I run it through my experience enough and where I think I know what the ethical answer should be, we keep getting the right answer. Then when I come to a hard case where I'm, I'm torn and I really don't know what to do, then I'll have some confidence in that normative system to rely on it to guide me in this difficult case because I know in my moral intuitions and experience and so on, that it's proved reliable where I can test it. And I feel that I've I've thoroughly kind of tested it out where I can test it. You see how that works. So um, it's not that we get our morals foundationally from these different normative systems, but rather um, we test them by our moral intuitions, which we already seem to have in, in plenty of clear cases... Uh, And then when we find difficult cases, uh, we find ourselves turning uh, to that normative system to help us. But at an even deeper level of thinking about ethics, philosophically speaking, we get into meta-ethics, just as we had, you have physics about science and the world, and you get into metaphysics, into philosophy about the nature of reality, so we have ethics and practicals, and here's the system, we get into meta-ethics, this is deeper foundational philosophical thinking about ethics, things like well, in ethics, we're talking about right and wrong and good and evil and should and shouldn't and obligatory and permissible. And What, what does this language mean? What are we referring to? What is goodness? Is goodness objective or subjective? A really foundational question here. Um, do you think it's possible to make the wrong moral choice? You know... If you think it's possible to make the wrong moral choice, that's because you think there's some kind of moral fact of the matter, something that when we make the right moral decision or we think we have correct moral knowledge, we're getting something correct about the facts of the matter. We're discovering something about ethical reality. We're not just making it up or inventing it if you don't think that there are actual moral facts, if you think ethics is just about um, inventing some sort of code of behaviour or something like making up the rules of the club, but it's not as if those, those rules are actually uh, reflecting truthfully something about the nature of reality to you, you're not actually discovering anything real, you're just inventing it, well then, why bother? worrying about matters of, of ethics um, at most it would become just a sort of pragmatic question of um, maybe what kind of society am I going to enjoy myself in in the most am I going to rub rub along fairly well with other people so that I you know enjoy my life but I'm not actually worried about am I doing the right thing because there's no such thing as the right thing to do It's a bit like treasure hunting. If you don't think there's any treasure buried in the school grounds, then you're not going to spend much time worrying about looking for it. If you think there is treasure buried somewhere in the school grounds, then you might think, I might spend some effort looking for it. And even more excitingly, if you not only think that there's buried treasure there but that you've got a treasure map that if you follow this set of instructions, it will help you more swiftly and easily discover the buried treasure. That's even more exciting. That's like thinking that there really are moral facts and that you have some reliable normative ethical theory that will help guide you to finding, discovering the right thing to do the right kind of life to pursue and so on um, so your attitude towards ethical matters will largely depend upon that kind of very deep philosophical issue about what what kind of thing you think goodness even is whether you think you can know what the right thing to do is um, which normative ethical system should we be relying on um Quite apart from them, when we come to then applying all of that to particular issues, we'll certainly have time to do some application around the issue of abortion and infanticide. Uh, I doubt we'll get on to animal rights, but I've got some material there, so we certainly won't run out of material uh, before lunch. Now again, another uh, another three categories to, to bear in mind with this uh, hopefully nice little little picture here will help that stick in your mind, Um, are different types of normative ethics. So we've had applied normative and meta-ethics, and then in the normative ethical category, there are generally three different broad types or category of normative ethical theory. Um, There are agent-centred, theories, like virtue theory, which is really to do with saying the main thing about ethics is about your character. It's about developing a good character, becoming the sort of person that you ought to be. Things like this. There are action-centred, the technical long philosophical term for this is deontological, uh, but action-centred theories that are really about The focus is on moral duty. It's about doing the right thing. So it's one thing to talk about, you know, am I becoming the right kind of person? What's my character? Another is is focusing on, well, what am I actually doing? What am I choosing? What am I doing in the world? But there's another set of ethical normative theories that are more outcome-centered, consequentialist theories like utilitarianism or hedonism, which are, aren't really concerned with, with your character or what you do, their focus is on what are the consequences of what you're doing or of the character that you're forming. But, it, but the, the real important thing for these theories is the consequences. So a utilitarian, for example, says um, that the right thing to do is whatever will, will produce as a consequence of doing it the greatest happiness for the greatest number of people. Okay, and you see that the focus there is on the consequences of your of your actions, morally speaking. there isn 't really any focus on say, your moral motives for what you do. Now, these are not necessarily um, kind of hermetically sealed compartments, as it were. You can have overlaps in your moral theory between these different emphases, as we 'll see, and uh, i 'll take a particular view on that but I'll leave it to you to to think about. Let's have a little um, introduction to virtue ethics. Often stems back very famously to the Greek philosopher Aristotle here who said that good for man is an activity of the soul in accordance with virtue. So the the good, what's good for people is is activity of the whole person, of your character, um, in accordance with virtue. And virtue ethics emphasises one's character and the virtues that that your character is coming to embody. Um, Virtue is a translation of the Greek word arete, which means something like being excellent in the fulfilment of a particular function. Um, In a sense, for Aristotle, ethics is a bit like learning to play a musical instrument. Um, by practising playing your instrument, you become better and better at it. It becomes more and more second nature to you to play well. So that when you start playing the piano, say, maybe you're having to think quite hard about the fact that oh, if there's a black circle that's filled in and it's on that line on the stave, then, then that means hit that note here. But when you've practiced enough at your instrument, it becomes so second nature to you to hit that note here when there's a filled-in black circle on that stave there, that it, that you're just you're just flying. You're not really so much consciously having to go through the motions, go through the rules of the game, and so on. Uh, it just becomes second nature to you. You've kind of put on your your musical. Nature. You've increased your musicality by practice. Similarly, for ethics, for Aristotle, it is like you should be uh, inculcating these certain virtues into your character uh, until it becomes second nature to you. And very famously, Aristotle had this theory about the golden mean in terms of virtues. So he would say things like, um, supposing you're, um, you're in the Athenian army. We're going off to war with Sparta. Uh, What sort of character do we want our soldiers to have? Well, we don't want them to be cowardly and run away at the first sign of danger. That's not, you know, the sort of character that a soldier should have. However, on the other extreme, what's the the opposite of
1: cowardice?
0: What's the opposite of cowardice? Hmm... Is it bravery? Here's what Aristotle said. He said it's foolhardiness. Foolhardiness, rushing in where angels fear to tread. Not not even taking a thought for your own safety or the chances of success that you have. Like, I'll take you all on, come on if you think you're hard enough for you know. That kind of attitude is probably equally calculated to make you lose the battles, having a load of cowards in your army. You see? He said bravery is the golden mean between cowardice and foolhardiness. Um, you don't want people who will run away, but you also want people who will think about it, who will take calculated risks rather than stupid risks in order to win the battle. Uh, And Aristotle thought it was like that for a lot of these virtues, that the virtue was a golden mean between two equal and opposite errors in character, as it were. So someone with a character that's, say, excellent at functioning selfishly, you could have a character that's really good at being selfish. Um, That wouldn't be virtuous (laughs) for Aristotle, of course. The character and virtues... In virtue theory, must be virtuous, that is, good character traits, a good character. Which, of course, raises for us the question this sounds oh, very much, very well in abstract, maybe, but then, well, what sort of character or whose character should we take as defining the virtuous character? Um, particularly if we, if we think that there are moral facts. Maybe moral facts about character. We don't want this to be just left up to the vagaries of cultural relativism or whatever. We want to be thinking to ourselves, as I form my moral character, I am forming the right kind of moral character, the character that I ought to have, and so on. Well, uh, here's why, uh, of course, I'm coming from a particular perspective here, but I'll broaden this point out. For any theist you might think that the obvious answer to that kind of question from virtue ethics is to say something like, well, the character in question is God's character. God's essential, necessary character is, uh, is definitive of what the virtuous, good character is. That being like God, being like God but not wanting to replace God, is, as it were, the proper function of human beings. That according to most theistic traditions, uh, we are created in the image of God in order to be like God, but without replacing him. That's what human beings are for, in a sense. So Genesis 1, which we shared across the Abrahamic uh, traditions, talks about humankind being created in the image of God. Male and female, both together reflecting uh, that image of God. And uh, God creating humanity as kind of the stewards of creation, uh, uh, at the the top of, you know, above the animals but below the the angels to look after and represent God within the the physical creation. Being more specifically Christian about it, um, think of Jesus' reply when someone asks him about what's the the greatest commandment and he says, well, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart and soul and mind, i.e. love God with everything you are. That's the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And that summarizes uh, the law tradition from the Old Testament. That you have this uh, loving relationship with God. And in that context, that sets the context for your love of yourself and of your neighbor as yourself. Because God is who he is and has that character. And he loves you. And he loves them. You love him. And you know that he loves you, so you love yourself. And you know that he loves them, so you have to love them as well, whether you like them or not. But you've got to love them. That's not necessarily the same thing. Um, Doing one, of course, uh, often follows in the heels of the other. Uh, But you don't have to be a Christian to think that there's uh, something to be said for this approach, of course. Here's uh, atheist philosopher Colin McGinn who says this. He says, I still admire many of the teachings of Jesus Christ and find his life exemplary of some important moral truths, But I long ago rejected the supernatural baggage that accompanies Christian belief. Now, of course, from my point of view as a Christian, I, I find that a little bit pejorative, just looking upon all that supernatural stuff as just some baggage which we can chuck out. But I understand where he's coming from. <laughs> uh, and at least I, I can see people can, can, can agree upon that a certain person... Uh, exhibits a sort of moral character that inspires us to to want to have one like it, that it embodies certain moral truths and that there's there's a difference between in ethics thinking merely in terms of having like a list when we come on to deontology, like a list of rules to follow and having a person whose character inspires us to be like them. When it comes to an issue of moral motivation, not just knowing what the right thing to do is, but having the kind of, here's a technical philosophical term, oomph, the oomph to do the right thing, um, virtue ethics uh, seems to have quite an advantage. Um, if you don't want to think uh, about Jesus or whatever, just think about whoever is, for you, uh, a moral hero. I saw there are plenty that people could could mention, whether they're indeed real characters or fictional characters. I think about the, the heroic qual- character qualities of Sam the Hobbit, if you're a fan of Tolkien's uh, uh, trilogy or you've seen the films, whatever. You know, I may not be able to carry the ring, Frodo, but he can carry you, and all that. You know, that's re- real heroic stuff. Um, so we have exemplars that inspire us to to better ourselves. <laughs> Or um, <coughs> St. Paul, a very early Christian writer in the first century, um, gave this, this p- poem, and um, this is a modern translation of his uh, ancient Greek poem, about the, the character of divine love that he was inspired to follow, that he saw in Christ. Um, people often have this, this verse, um, usually in a more um, stage translation, read out in marriage services, because it's a lovely, literally, a lovely description of love. Takes pleasure in the flowering of truth, going on to positive qualities now. Takes pleasure in the flowering of truth, puts up with anything, trusts God always, always looks for the best, never looks back, but keeps going to the end. But then you may notice to yourself that once someone like Paul starts saying, I'm really inspired to follow the character qualities that I see in Jesus. Let me write them down. What you end up with, of course, is a kind of list of things that you might take as kind of rules, and you might think, "Oh, so okay, what I've got to do is got to go around thinking to myself, well, uh, I must try harder to always look for the best in other people rather than for the worst. Um, I must." Um, Make sure I don't revel when other people are grovelling. I shouldn't have uh, uh, Schwadenfreude, as the, the Germans say. And so on. And you start ending up with a list that begins to sound pretty deontological in character. Um, now, I don't think that that's something that actually undermines or contradicts the virtue theory approach. Rather, I think that it shows that, that virtue theory and this rule based or deontological way of looking at things are actually kind of mutually helpful to one another there is no necessary conflict there these kind of lists of commandments if you like you could see them as a bit like putting up a trellis if you're a gardener to help a plant to grow into the right shape or if you're doing uh, bonsai tree making and you you very carefully Crop it and put up a bit of wire for it to have a shape to follow so that the tree grows into the shape that you, as the gardener, want it to have. Having some sort of um, nailed down set of qualities that you can be specific about what virtues am I following helps you to put on that second nature. So that you're following, you're exhibiting those virtues eventually more by second nature than by having to look at the list and think, how should I behave? But the list helps you get there, just like the trellis helps the plant grow into the right shape. Um, So I don't think there's a a contradiction between these two different approaches. You can see them as mutually reinforcing. Uh, Any questions quickly on points of objection or clarification or whatever on uh virtue theory on the, the three different levels of ethics uh, we're going to go and look at deontological a little bit more etc after this but particularly on virtue uh, theory uh, and so on i'm speaking with crystal clarity wonderful okay um So deontological ethics here, people usually immediately think, particularly within our e-context, something like the Ten Commandments, where you have, and reflecting Jesus' summary, you have the first four commandments talk about our relationship with God, and the other commandments are about our relationship with with other people in that context. Um, Characteristic attitudes and actions of the virtuous character might be listed to guide the formation of the virtuous character. Um, but it's you, you get a very different understanding and a, an approach to this kind of rule-based ethics if you're thinking about it in terms of this is a sort of useful summary, rule-of-thumb guidelines that are the point of which is helping me change my character. That's a very different sort of understanding, an approach and feeling of ethics than if you're thinking... Here's the set of rules that I've got to follow in order to be a good, per- you know. <laughs> that feels very different, doesn't it? And of course, of course, you don't have to take a religious approach to ethics in order to to think that there's something useful in deontological ethics. So here's uh, a list of ten commandments by the atheist philosopher A.C. Grayling in one of his recent books, and he gives what he thinks are the ten most important sort of summaries of uh, actions and character traits to inculcate within ourselves: um, love well, seek good in all things, harm no others, think for yourself, take responsibility, respect nature, etc., etc. Now, of course, his Ten Commandments don't list any character traits or actions that we should take towards God, because he's an atheist and he doesn't think there is a God. So, there's no point in adopting any uh, actions or character traits towards god so the focus then is all on relationship with other people and indeed um the world uh, around us uh, as well um to bring in that sort of stewardship aspect <laughs> Well, here's here's a little problem with deontological ethics as well. Um, If you've noticed those signs at the swimming pool, the municipal swimming pool, where they tell you all the things that you're not allowed to do in the swimming pool. Uh, You know, here's one. Uh, Will patrons kindly refrain from running, uh, pushing, uh, gymnastics, shouting, ducking, petting, bombing, swimming in the diving area and smoking? Okay, so you look at the the set of rules for the swimming pool and you think, oh, okay. So, if I want to take my my motorboat along to the swimming pool with me, uh, push my motorboat into the swimming pool, drive my motorboat around the swimming pool, um, uh, drinking lager as I'm driving around the swimming pool, that's obviously fine, because there are no rules about not doing that.
1: It's a good idea, actually. <laughs> good idea, they say, for the front here.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, so, obviously, <laughs> there's, there's a limitation to having any, any list of rules, and that it's very hard to have a list of rules... That covers all of the bases. Um, What do you do about that? Do 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 you start producing a more and more complicated list of rules until your ethical rule book is like the Encyclopedia Britannica and you have to have a sort of grand photographic memory in order to remember you know oh what should i do in this situation oh i think it's i think it's um, chapter 12 of book 16 paragraph 5 subsection 2b isn't it you know it's start having conversations about this about how you should behave because we just refer to the rules that becomes very unwieldy impractical even if you uh, could write them all down
1: yeah that's why the law is so big yeah. Because they're trying they to try and cover each and every little thing that someone could do bad. Yeah. So, you know Yeah, it's instead of being concise and allowing you to have a, a moral judgment, of thinking, mm. you know, maybe this isn't right, they do want to say, you know, don't go into a pool and you know <coughs> drive
0: your medium around. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And even then, as our friends points out, that's why the the law of the land is such a sort of compendium like that. Even then We think we need judges who can interpret the law and make new rulings and so on to apply to new situations because however compendious we make it, it's never compendious enough. And things are always changing and and so on. Uh, Sorry, compendious. Oh, uh, having lots of things in it. Um, uh, Like... um, like, a, yeah, if you had a, a compendium of works, would be like a lot of different books that all in a series or something. Yeah, like, like a Bible or like the law code or uh, like a DVD box set. That's a compendium of DVDs. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so, trying to make the rules more and more complex to apply to everything is very difficult and unwieldy. Is that necessarily an objection to rule-based ethics? Well, perhaps if you, can, if you can boil it down to some essentials, maybe ten. Maybe, I mean, Jesus tried to boil it down to love God and love your neighbour as yourself. You know, it's a very short rule. And then you leave it to people to try and use their common sense, as it were, to apply it to differing situations. And I think particularly if you see this sort of rule-based ethics as something that is the main point of which is to help you in terms of the virtue ethics, putting on a character that will exhibit these virtues and will naturally tend to do the right thing in a new situation because you've got the right kind of character that will express itself in that situation, um, then certainly um, having some rules seems to be something that's perfectly sort of sensible and useful um, but I think this kind of thing does point out perhaps a weakness with deontological ethics if you just leave it on its own and if you want to try and nail everything uh, down rather than leaving room for some uh, some, some common sense and, and, and some agreement on some just basic sort of moral concepts. Uh, so I think deontological and virtue ethics uh, meet, uh, for me, they meet in, in my ideal agent, which is God. But you may have a different ideal agent or you may just have an an abstract notion of kind of the ideal character, the ideal agent. (laughs) And indeed, I'd say the virtuous person, sorry, the virtuous person will fulfill any moral duties, any rules that they ought to obey. And they'll do it with due regard for any foreseeable consequences of their actions. Um, So you can sort of mold these approaches uh, together. Uh, somewhat you'll particularly pay attention in virtue ethic to the consequence of your actions in terms of how does my behaving this way reinforce my character how am i changing myself so that things are becoming more and more habitual uh, to myself uh, through the actions that i take Uh, and that consequence of your character character development will become key so yeah, that's kind of consequentialist, but what you're really looking at as the end goal here is the virtue theory character rather than just, you know, what are the consequences in the world or or something like that. Garrett DeVise, philosopher, um, says virtue theory is not exclusive of these other things. He agrees with me uh, and it uh, accords supremely with ethical ideas about responsibility for motives as well as uh, actions and consequences. So... um, my uh, suggestion is that if you start off with virtue ethics as kind of the, the foundational notion, then you can fit in the other ethical approaches uh, quite neatly. <laughs> now, when it comes to assessing a normative ethic, right, I talked a little bit about intuition and judging them by intuition and so on. Um, normative ethics, of course, can't be assessed by normative ethics. Uh, In that sense, uh, without begging the question. So if you were to say, uh, you know, why should I be a utilitarian? Why should I adopt the normative ethics of the utilitarian? The utilitarian uh, should not answer you by saying, well, if you become a utilitarian, then uh, that will produce the greatest happiness for the greatest number of people. And that's why you should be a utilitarian because they're assuming the truth of their normative ethic in order to argue for the truth of their moral ethic. So they're sort of just arguing in a circle, aren't they? And perhaps it would be more to the point to say, why should we adopt a utilitarian ethic? And they might say something like, well, because adopting utilitarianism, we think will lead you to making correct ethical choices more often than not. Or more often than the adoption of any other normative ethical theory on offer will lead you to making the right moral decisions. Now, that may not be true, but at least it's not circular. Um, But all of this, as I say, is going to to come down to certain basic moral intuitions that we have and that you can't get below. You You either see that torturing small children for fun is wrong that murdering six million people in the Holocaust was wrong. You either just kind of see that, or, um, well, it's pretty difficult to then have a moral argument with you. We're sort of more minded to call the men in white coats than we are to say, well, let's have a more complicated philosophical discussion. (laughs) You know? And indeed, I'd say utilitarianism, which which is a big feature of our culture, particularly in political decision-making, utilitarianism comes to the fore very much often when you have a limited pool of resources that you want to try and do good with in the world. You might say, we've got, a, we've got a certain budget for the NHS. How do we use that budget to do the most good? You know, What percentage of it should go on hip operations as opposed to neonatal baby care? How do we make that choice? Um, utilitarian considerations often seem like the obvious ones to go in for there. Uh, And they often seem also to give the right answer, intuitively speaking. But there are some difficulties. For example, should ethical judgments be long or short-term? And how long-term? There might be quite a difference between saying you should make the moral decision that gives the greatest happiness to the greatest number of people for today versus for the the next month or in ten years' time. Or 20? And how, how long are you going to measure? And indeed, how are you going to measure? What kind of unit of happiness are you going to use, as it were? Um, that's a sort of fairly subjective notion. You can't get out your happiness Geiger counter and point it at people and sort of get a, you know, an empirical measurement to put into your scientific calculation of happiness uh, calculation to see what you should do. What about minority rights? If the the whole drift of your ethical system is whatever produces the greatest happiness for the greatest number overall, that's the right thing to do. Well, what if there were a moral dilemma whereby making a certain choice would make a billion people all quite happy and a hundred people really miserable? Surely the the right thing to do is to make the billion people quite happy because that's the greatest amount for the greatest number. But doesn't that then lead you to ride roughshod over minority rights? How do you justify a belief in minority rights on a consequentialist view? Um, Maybe it's solvable, but it's a a dilemma to wrestle with. And don't motive or moral character count in ethics. Surely... um, you know, two people who do exactly the same action or, or whose actions have the same consequences in terms of other people's happiness or so on, consequences in the world, and one of them has a, has a purely selfish moral motive and the other one has a very uh, pure, praiseworthy moral motive. Surely there is a moral difference. Uh, between them, but it's not one that can be captured by a system that only looks at the the consequences in terms of other people's uh, aggregate happiness, as it were. So we actually assess these different normative ethics, like utilitarianism or what, whatever, um, or the, the different virtues that are proposed within virtue theory, say, using our moral intuitions about clear cases. And when a normative ethic seems trustworthy, on the basis of those intuitions... Um, about clear cases, then we trust it to help us when it comes to difficult, unclear cases. Yeah? Let's just do a little run through using a couple of uh, examples for some film clips, for some recent films um, that shows us that process in action and gets us into some of the, the difficulties that people face in doing it as well. Here's Immanuel Kant uh, being a uh, philosopher. Uh, from uh, a couple of hundred years ago puts uh, a rather philosophical spin, you might think, on uh, the straightforward golden rule or or Jesus' thing about love your neighbour as yourself. Immanuel Kant, standing in that tradition, puts it in a very philosophical language uh, and he says this, act, here's my sort of norm, act in such a way that you treat humanity, whether in your own person or the person of any other, always at the same time as an end, and never merely as a means to an end. What i saying is this. Um, we have uh, ends and we have means to an end. So if our end is painting the wall blue, the means to that end might be having a good paintbrush and a pot and using the paintbrush to put the paint on the wall. So the, the paintbrush is the means to the end of painting, getting the wall to be blue. And it'll be a good paintbrush insofar as it does well at the function of putting paint from the pot onto the wall without kind of dripping it everywhere and and so on. And that's how we would judge how good a paintbrush is it. And Immanuel Kant says, you should never treat a, a person as nothing but a means to an end, as just a tool for your convenience, as it were. Now, of course, we do treat people as means to an end. So, for example, all of you uh, are treating your teachers in this school as means to the end of your education. Okay? Now, Manuel Kant's not saying that's wrong of you. So long as you're not just treating them as means to an end. Yes? Wait,
1: sorry, is
0: there right if I go to the loo? Yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah.
1: Surely, you know, teachers are using us as means to an end to get money it's payment. Yeah, okay,
0: exactly. So vice versa, good point. Teachers are using you as a means to an end of being employed as teachers with people to teach. If they didn't have anyone to teach, they couldn't do their job and uh, couldn't get... Either their pay or the job satisfaction they they get from that task. So they get things out of you. They use you. You use them. We all use one another. But Kant says that's okay. That's not immoral as long as we're, we're not just treating people as a means to an end. As long as we also remember that their ends in themselves valuable just for being a person, not valuable just for what they can accomplish that we happen to value. Uh, we don't just treat them as a tool, uh, we treat them as people uh, in and of themselves, okay? And many people kind of chime with, with that and would say, yeah, that seems pretty common sense, let's run it through some thought experiments. You know, if I followed that rule, would I participate in the Holocaust? Um, probably no. You know, would I torture small children for fun? Um, No, I'd just be treating them as the means to the end of my having a jolly. Um, Would I murder Aunt Matilda by poisoning her her afternoon pims or whatever? Um, No, you know, just for selfish gain, you know, that's treating her as a means to the end of my getting her estate. Uh, So that seems pretty trustworthy. Now, let's try and apply it. Here's uh, two clips from the film of Judy Picco's book, My Sister's Keeper do I get from the sense of that people know about this this film or this book have you read this book, seen this film here here are two clips I think they do a really good job in this film they do a really good job of helping you empathise hello (laughs) thank you of helping you empathise with, with both sides of a difficult ethical dilemma about the creation uh, through test tube genetics and so on of a what's called a saviour sibling. <laughs> now, of course you can empathise with the mother grasping at that straw. It's like a miracle, says the doctor. But of course you can empathise with Anna saying... I was just made in a dish to be spare parts for someone else. I'm just a tool. And if you were following Immanuel Kant's ethical norm, you might think to yourself that creating saviour siblings like that is wrong because it's just treating people as means to ends. Or you might wonder whether or not the, the parent's psychology could be complicated enough that they're not treating Anna as nothing but a means to an end. She may feel that she's being treated as nothing but a means to an end, but maybe it's possible to create a saviour sibling and love them as a person in and of themselves, value them for themselves, as well as what they're doing for someone else. So there's an interesting conversation to be had about that, uh, about whether or not Immanuel Kant's rule leads to yes or no there. But here's a film clip from the early part of uh, the island where Sean Bean's character is showing around his very rich clientele around his private medical facility, uh, offering them the very uh, particular services that this slightly futuristic company has to offer. And that is, of course, the key question because if you attempted to say... Look, Sean Bean, you shouldn't be doing this. Um, Cloning these people and then keeping these clones on ice as a backup set of lungs, etc., is simply treating people as a means to an end. Sean Bean is going to say, I'm not treating anyone as a means to an end because this agnate, as we've now called it, is not a person. Of course, it's genetically indistinguishable from humans, organically speaking, when we've grown it into its adult self, it looks just like a human being, etc. But it's in a persistent vegetative state. It doesn't. It's not thinking. It's not feeling. It's not worrying about what to have for lunch. So it's not a person, you see. So then there's a whole debate about, well, before we can even invoke this particular ethical norm, and that would be the same with many ethical systems, before we can say... Something comes under the consideration of our morals that we want to apply to people is this um, meta-ethical, anthropological kind of question of what is a person Uh, who gets to count. Do you define personhood in terms of what something can do, like Sean Bean is? It's only a person if it can think, feel, etc., etc., or is your definition of personhood more, more centred upon just the kind of thing that something is? Is it a matter of being a certain type of thing or of being able to do certain types of thing? We'd have to answer that question about what, what is the definition of a person before we could even invoke the ethical norm into the situation. Because what you think something is plays an obvious role in how you think it's, it's, it's ethical to treat it. If I take my um, PowerPoint clicker that I brought with me this morning and I do this to it, does anyone in the room think I just did something immoral? No, okay. Um, so I come up to our friend here. Can I have your ear? Thank you. I'm not going... You're very trusting. <laughs> if I were to walk up to him <laughs> and flick his ear just out of the blue, at least he might think that I'd done something immoral. I suspect many of you would as well. Now, that's clearly because you think that you think there's some difference between the kind of thing that this is and the kind of thing that you are that justifies that different reaction and that, that same action taken... Has a moral dimension in one case and not, not in the other. Your understanding of the nature of a particular thing, of the nature of personhood, relates to your general worldview as well, uh, as we'll see. Um, so um, you can't, in the end, separate off ethical questions from a whole broader set of, of basically your whole sort of worldview or philosophical outlook uh, on life. Okay, so, unless you've got a question of of what did I mean by this, or clarification, or or whatever, you can always come and ask me later. Um, Let's just uh, spend a little while um, going through a sort of exercise in philosophical argument that I think illustrates a number of these points. Now, you may or may not agree with me about this, but I hope you'll see how the process of thinking about an issue like this illustrates how some of the points that I've made um, sort of play out in actually trying to make an ethical argument about something. Um, we might very well have a spectrum of opinion on the issue of, of killing the very young, of, of abortion and indeed uh, of infanticide, as we'll see, um, all the way through from thinking that it is always impermissible, wrong. It's always wrong to kill unborn babies. Does, does anyone in the room think that? Some some might, yeah? All the way through to thinking, well, it's always fine, it's always permissible. Does anyone think that? Not so I see. Okay, so very few, one, very few, the last group I had, like one or two at those ends. As you work your way in towards the middle here, you know, are there people who think it's almost... Always impermissible, but there are some exceptions. You'd say, "Yeah, I think it's generally wrong, but there are some exceptions." Yeah, okay. Or, but I think it's generally impermissible, but there are quite a few exceptions where well, it is permissible. And then you kind of cross over the key dividing line, is really between C and D, where you go from thinking it's it's at least generally impermissible to thinking that it's generally permissible except for exceptions, and then you're, you're really just talking about, well, how many exceptions? What are the exceptional circumstances where you differ from your sort of general attitude towards the action that you should take in the area? And that's the sort of general moral principle that you can think about. Well, let me uh, just present to you an argument for being on the C C to A side of that divide. So it's a very sort of modest argument for at least position C. And you'll see how this goes. I take as premise one, that very intuitive, sort of Kantian, love your neighbour as yourself sort of moral principle. Premise two is going to be the key one. If and when... A human being is a person. I'm not prejudging the issue of whether there's a difference there or not, but I'm allowing that there could be. So that's very open. If and when a human being is a person, then premise one applies to them, that you shouldn't treat them just as a means to an end, you should love your neighbour as yourself, whatever. The conclusion is that if and when a human being is a person, then you shouldn't treat them just as a means to an end or take that life without sufficient reason. So it's not an argument for a total exclusion on abortion, it's only a a modest argument for a general attitude that's open to exceptions. You see how that works? Well here's an interesting article uh, from last year uh, in the Daily Mail that reported about a a report that some um, medical ethicists had just published where they argued that doctors should have the right to kill unwanted or disabled babies at birth, as they are not a real person, said these doctors. <laughs> they, they, they took this distinction between being a human being and being a person and said, young, unwanted or disabled babies, if they're a baby, it's not a person. Um, Francesca Miniver argues that killing a newborn is little different from aborting it in the womb, and even a healthy baby could have its life snuffed out if the mother said she can't afford to look after it, Dr. Minerva suggested. Uh, Minerva argues that a young baby is not a real person, and so killing it in the first days after birth is a little different from aborting it in the womb. Uh, in a, this is, you might think this is ironic, but this is an article published in the Journal of Medical Ethics. Minerva and her co-author uh, argue, quote, that afterbirth abortion, i.e. infanticide, should be permissible uh, in cases where abortion is. Uh, They state that, like an unborn child, a newborn has yet to develop hopes, goals, and dreams, and so, while clearly human, is not a person. So they're buying into this kind of Sean Bean approach to who counts as a person in terms of you have to be able to do certain things, you have to be able to have hopes, goals, and dreams, and if you don't, Then even if you are a human being, you're not a human person. Yeah.
1: This could spiral out into something incredibly, you know, disgusting, terrible. Like you know, just talk some. I mean, one, you know, if we started tomorrow killing babies at birth, which we didn't want, Mm. who's to stop it from turning into you know, killing you know, anybody? Yeah. At any point in their life, you know. It's like saying, oh,
0: yeah, you've forgotten your homework. Right, uh, it's time to go to... <laughs> yeah, well... Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Again, that's a good, he's, he's using an extreme example to make a point, but he's saying if you're, if you're defining a person in terms of they can do a certain list of things, who gets to say what's on the list? Who counts? It, what if you get Alzheimer's and you, you can't think very well? What if you, you get run over by a bus and you're in a coma? Okay, And we think, oh, you're not thinking, you're not feeling, you're not dreaming... You don't have any goals because you're in a coma, so it's fine for us to kill you. That would, could apply. What if, what if you're asleep and you're not dreaming? Well, you don't have any hopes, you're not entertaining any goals, you're not, you're not dreaming by definition. You don't meet our list, therefore when you fall asleep tonight, I'm going to come and kill you. But it won't be murder. you know you could push it It, how do you define it's a very important issue isn't it so this was this was a very controversial article obviously it hit the newspapers because it was so controversial but you see how this understanding of what a person is issue is playing out very centrally there Um, is it correct to define a person in terms of what it can do and who decides what the list consists of or just of what you are You could ask these questions, and you might think they have different answers. You could ask, when does organic life begin in the womb? When does the organic life of an individual human organism first exist in the womb? And when does an individual human person first exist? Now, maybe they all have the same answer, or they all have different answers, but you might say in particular, that science can do a good job of helping you answer these two questions here. But this last question about personhood, particularly if your philosophical position is that there's more to a person than just the physical nature, that the mind is more than the brain, then you would think that science is incapable of answering that question. This is a question for uh, metaphysics rather than, than science, but science certainly would be relevant to answering A and B. Uh, given physicalism, given a naturalistic, materialistic worldview, if you think a person just is matter, full stop, you might find yourself saying something like this. When does organic life first exist in the womb? Well, it's from conception. Obviously, if sperm meets egg, you've got organic life. But B, when does the organic life of an individual human being first exist? Well, you might say it's not from conception... Rather it's from that stage in the development of the embryo when you've separated out the part of it that's going to become the placenta, you've gone past the stage where it might split into being twins, for example, so that it can only be the individual organism that it is, and that's sometime after conception. But C, when does an individual human person first exist, given that you're assuming naturalism is true? Well, I think you might be able to argue for any answer from C.A. or C.B. through to the position that Minerva advocated of, well, a newborn baby still isn't a person until it can do X, Y, Z. Um, I think you have to leave the the physicalists, the naturalists to argue amongst themselves as to which the most plausible argument answer to C, which is the crucial moral question, as far as I can see, is going to be. Um, If you had some sort of dualist view of, of human nature, you thought there's more to a person than just the physical, you might end up giving different answers, and indeed according to different types of dualism, but you might say, okay, when does organic life first exist? It's from conception. When does an individual human first exist? Well... Science again does a good job at maybe answering that in terms of well, it's we've separated off what's going to be the placenta, what's going to become a twin, if you're going to have twins, etc. We've got an individual organism. But, C, when does an individual human person first exist? I think plausibly, you're going to say you're either going to say B or when mental properties first exist, and when do mental properties first exist? Maybe you're going to say, I don't know. Some people, based
1: on some
0: you know, there's evidence that babies develop hearing. Yeah, so later on, a reaction to certain stimuli, etc. But when, when do they first exhibit it? It's different from. We can tell they exhibit it now, maybe, but how, how early on in the process did they exhibit it? Maybe, you're, maybe we're ignorant about that. But here's an interesting thing. Here's a general moral principle: when you're ignorant about some very relevant bit of information to making a moral decision, you ought to play it safe. So, supposing you've you've stumbled into the firing range on Salisbury Plain, you've stumbled across a, a hand grenade, and you think to yourself, "Ooh." I can't see anyone around. I've always wanted to let one of these things off. Um, Oh, look, there's a bunker over there. I know what I'll do. I'll pull the pin out, and I'll chuck it in the bunker. I don't know whether there's anyone in there or not, but I'm sure it'll be fine. Boom! Now, did I behave in a morally wise manner? Absolutely no, because it's not enough just to be ignorant about whether or not there's anyone in the bunker. I've got to know that there's no one in there before I can have any uh, moral sensibility in chucking the grenade in, haven't I? So when I, I know I'm ignorant about this matter, that very ignorance can play into an argument about how I ought to behave. So you can end up extending the, the argument that I gave to begin with by saying, OK, if and when organic human life is also a human being particularly if you have a a dualist view of people, you might say, well, it might be as early as B, it might not, I don't know, I'm not sure, but therefore, premise four, given that uncertainty, I ought to play it safe, and I ought to apply premise one, assuming the personhood uh, in the womb, at as early a time as is plausible... And therefore, I should act as if premise one applied from the earliest plausible time, which, say, you might argue is B. Some people would argue uh, is right from conception. And so you see how, in that kind of process of going through a moral argument, things like general moral intuitions, um, we ought to play it safe in situations where we're, we're ignorant about something that's really relevant. Um... Love your neighbour as yourself. That just seems obvious. Those kind of principles then work themselves into arguments whereby maybe science can help us in working out some of the answers, but maybe it can't, and particularly depending on what kind of understanding we have of a person, how do we define a person, who gets to count, that, that's relevant, rele- relevant to what sort of general world view we have of people, uh, It will connect to issues like, do you believe people are created by God in his image, etc., etc.? And that according to the differences that people have about those kind of issues, they will end up agreeing or disagreeing with the argument that you've made. But at least if you understand that that's why people disagree, you can then focus on having an argument about, well, can I persuade you to see things the way, you know, to accept premise? for or whatever, if that's what you disagree with, rather than us actually just getting hot onto the collar with each other. As one theologian famously said, um, civilized people argue with one another, barbarians club each other uh, over the head. So we want to be civilized in these disagreements rather than uh, barbaric about it. Just before we uh, end for lunch, uh, let me take a completely different attack on this because many people think that the the only issue at the core of the whole sort of abortion debate is this debate about when does it become a person with a right to life? That's the issue. Well, maybe it's not the issue. Um, For example, um, would you use this chunk of matter... For target practice? If I gave you a gun and said, here's a chunk of marble, would you be happy using it for target practice? Most people would. Okay, that's fine. Um, how about this chunk of matter? This is a chunk of marble. Yes. Would you be happy using this for target practice? Yes. yes and no. Okay, we're getting a bit more. Why are we more ambivalent about that rather than that? Someone put a lot of time and effort into making the statue. It's got a meaning for someone else. Okay, yeah, that's, that's quite a good answer to that, I think. What if you knew that the first chunk of marble that I'd pointed to had been earmarked by the sculptor as being the chunk of marble they were going to make their next statue out of? Then, then, you'd still be le- you'd be less happy shooting this, just knowing that it was going to become a statue. Maybe. What about this chunk of matter? Would you be happy using this chunk of matter as target practice? Okay. Intuitively, picture of a baby, lots of shaking heads. <laughs> We believe we have duties to care for the environment, for example, even though you can't wrong the environment by failing to care for it. So quite apart from the question of, does, does the, does the foetus, does the baby, cetera, is it a person with human rights? You could leave that question aside and say, well, I can sometimes have duties to behave in certain ways, to treat things in a certain way, even if it doesn't have any rights. Um, you can impose upon me a duty to water your flowers for you whilst you're away on holiday, okay? Now, my failure to water the flowers, if I forget, well, it harms the flowers, but it doesn't morally wrong them. I haven't, you know, contravened the flowers' moral rights somehow, plausibly. Um, I'm not uh, not trampling over the flowers' rights by failing to water them, but, but I am doing a moral wrong to you, the owner of the garden, Okay? Well, suppose I gave you an acorn as a present. Um, an acorn is a potential tree. Someone as an embryo is a potential person. Um, I want your family to have a tree to enjoy, to look at it, to play in it, a shelter under its shade, and so on. I give you this present. Um, failing to grow the tree, or say you grew the tree only to chop it down for firewood. Well, that might be taken as a moral wrong to me, the giver of the gift, even if it's not morally wronging the tree, you see. Although there could be circumstances in which I might be understanding as to why you failed to grow the tree or you chopped it down for firewood or something. You know, I might understand in certain circumstances. But nevertheless, such an argument from the intent of a gift giver establishes a a prima facie duty to to treat the gift in line with the intention of the gift giver, you see. So this is where, quite apart from the question of of human nature and human rights, a broader issue of your worldview comes into play. Um, Supposing you think, along with the biblical worldview, that, that children are a gift from God. That, that having a child is analogous to being given an acorn. Or, um, you know, well, that would change your perspective on the matter. The theist, and indeed perhaps the agnostic, someone who says, well, I don't know whether or not there's a God who views us having children as, as a gift to be received from him in a certain way. Perhaps such people will think that at the risk of doing a moral wrong to God who intends children, at least as a generality, prima facie, to be received as a heritage. We have a prima facie duty to receive and treat the unborn with, with respect, quite irrespective of questions about their morals, their, their status as persons, or as, do they have rights and so on at certain stages of their development. Just as the, the illustration with the acorn, okay, I don't think the acorn or the tree has any rights, but because it's a gift from someone, then you do nevertheless have have duties to receive it in a certain way, whilst recognising that there might be circumstances, you know, if it's a really harsh winter and you're all going to freeze to death, unless you chop the tree down that I gave you, you might think oh, I'll understand why you did that. But you can't treat the gift casually, um, as it were. And so there's an instance where... um, A meta-ethical worldview belief, uh, not only beliefs about the mind-body problem, how do you define a person, relate to that kind of moral decision, but about whether or not theism is true. Uh, A really basic worldview issue can actually play a big role in applied ethical decision-making, and different people with different worldviews will, for very obvious reasons, perhaps take different perspectives on how you answer a particular applied ethical decision because of that. Now, you may or may not agree with my position on it, which, which should be clear, but I hope that you agree with my reasoning on why it is that we have a difference of opinion about that, given that we have one. I hope that that I've given you enough kind of data to make it clear to you some of the moves that are made in this whole sort of area of ethical uh, decision-making and how that ties up with big issues about the nature of reality, the nature of people, uh, and so on. And I hope um, that'll give a good context to some of the other things uh, you do today. And I'm going to finish there. I'm five minutes early. We can all go off to, to lunch. Thank you very much.